0: Welcome back to another episode of Race Relations. I am your host, Natsune. Today's episode is sponsored by the Open University's grad school, a great place to do your doctoral studies. This episode is also supported by Now Again Records, who have made available the amazing music you'll be hearing throughout this episode. These great tunes are from the Zambian and Zimbabwean liberation struggle for independence. And I thought it would be really fitting for today's conversation. As we look at development and decolonization, I wanted to put together a thought-provoking conversation and I thought it would be better to invite to sit and think out loud with me than today's guest. So we start off the conversation around last summer and meander our way into development and decolonization. As ever, opinions expressed are wholly the individual's And this particular episode is meant to be thought-provoking. So neither I nor the guests claim to have the answers, but only to still be evolving, still learning. And you may wholly disagree, but I've heard it say that honest disagreement is a good sign of progress. So let's conversate. What's up? Big storm is coming. Let's start with last summer, the protests, the moment of introspection we were all forced to have around denaturalizing violence against black bodies and perhaps a more collective conversation with more white people listening and joining in the conversation. I'm interested in the nature of your work and how that historical moment of introspection changed your work, if at all. So let's let's talk about you and what you do.
1: Um, so hi, my name is Natalia Nana. I'm an equity, diversity, inclusion, belonging um, consultant. I work primarily in white, um, white majority spaces, white traditional spaces, um, particularly focusing on decolonizing um, the NGO sector, charity sector, faith spaces. Um, a lot of my work focuses on deconstruction, decolonization and looking at internalized isms so internalized racism, internalized homophobia, etc, etc. Um, and, yeah, really trying to deconstruct this space. So not just taking it on its own terms, but looking at, OK, you can't have diversity and inclusion. What the goal is for me is liberation, is emancipation. And that can only come through decolonization and actually deconstructing in a really holistic 360, more egalitarian way.
0: OK, so why choose to work within diversity? Why do the work that you do?
1: Yeah, to clarify, because diversity is one part of it. So diversity yeah. is bringing a difference that we don't already have um inclusion is obviously then making sure that actually when you do have people who are non-majority in those spaces minoritized people in those spaces that they actually are included in a meaningful genuine non-tokenistic non-arbitrary way and that's then you know where you get equity and belonging if you're doing that intentionally if you're doing it sincerely why i do this is because to me it's just such such am i allowed to swear on this no <laughs> <laughs> it's such such a profound this is good it makes me have to like use my use my vocabulary more um it's such a profound injustice you know i i smart and i rage against the legacy of colonialism and predating it um you know s- slavery the transatlantic slave slave trade i mean by that and how it has shaped and scarred our world and the power inequalities that we have on both the macro international level and the micro—like to me, all of it traces back to the you know the founding fathers, and I don't mean American founding fathers, but I mean it's more generally, like you know the white middle-class men, homogenous hegemony that instituted these capitalistic, binary white supremacist patriarchal structures. All those. Hundreds of years ago, that's still in the waters now. You know, draw a line straight back and say, okay, this goes back to transatlantic slavery. This goes back to white people discovering boats, but discovering boats with the ideology that they are better, that they have this post-enlightenment truth with an objective capital T to impart on the world and anybody else who doesn't see the world through their white supremacist capitalist lens is less than. That is such a stain, and that is still something that we're living and breathing and literally dying from today. Mm. That's why I do the work I do.
0: You've touched on the white construct, and I want to come back to it in reference to the development sector. But I know you have some really interesting ideas on the white construct, so let's have a quick segue.
1: Um, and yes, whiteness is a construct. Fun fact you know, whiteness is changeable whiteness is not it actually wasn't even originally about um skin color you know so king charles ii i listened to an a david oligosa talk a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about oh how king charles ii was called the black king because of his black hair and black mustache and and you know darker features and ruddy complexion so that's what blackness used to refer to in britain um, so just, you know, looking at the fact that whiteness is a construct originally Irish people, Italians, Greeks were not counted as white. You know, they were counted as coloured. They were seen as, as other um, than, you know, the Northern Hemisphere, um, paler white skin. So just, yeah, reminding listeners that whiteness is a construct. You know, south in South um, Africa, I think it was Japanese people who were included in the term white when the South um, African then government um, wanted to trade with Japan. And japan were like well no you're still calling us yellow or colored we're not gonna trade with you unless we're given equal status so just seeing how race moves around it's about power it's about economics it's always about power and in our world our post-capitalist world well still in capitalism but i mean like post the onset capitalist world race and power are tied to money they're tied to economics unfortunately
0: even then, I learned something new, and I feel like every time I have this particular conversation, I learn something new about the various perspectives of race across time historically. But, um, like I said, we'll come back to that in reference to development. What I want to go back to is your work and the practical ways of helping organizations or individuals take realistic stock of how racist or problematic they are, but also establishing long-term change that outlasts the hashtag, I try to kind of imagine your work um, and you know, you walk into a room, do you play a game of let's play, how racist are you? Uh, yeah, what are the creative ways you get people to reconcile um, who they are with who they think they are?
1: First thing is to make it a safe space to just say step up. Like don't come in here and, and be a coward, come in here and be bold. If you can't even be honest with yourself, then you have no chance of growing in any emancipation because you're chaining yourself if you can't even be honest. So yeah, I do. Actually I am quite a provocative um teacher. I mean I don't find myself provocative, but because people are so basic and weak, they find me provocative. But I will do well. Okay, how racist are you? Like, okay, let's have a like scale of and depending on the group, I'll vary my games. So, okay, who would you rather have a your next or neighbour? Okay, would you rather have an Asian family? Oh, but they might be cooking spices oh, they might be a bit noisy because there are so many of them living together. Or would you rather have um, a a, a young Nigerian family? You know, like, oh, they might be quite loud and colourful. And I'll do that. I'll get people to just look at their discomfort and be like, okay, who do you feel instinctively you want to walk closer to at night or even two o'clock in the afternoon? You know, if there's a young black guy to use that stereotype that we've all been so polluted by in a hoodie versus a young white woman in a velour tracksuit like who if you had to pick one would you rather sit at the bus stop next to? and just i'll put out examples like that and the people who are bold who are brave will raise their hands and say like yeah i actually feel uncomfortable saying that like oh i'm a bit ashamed of myself that's the learning that's where you do the learning recognize your internalized racism and now you can actually de-weed it because you can't weed a garden if you're there saying no i already sprayed root killer i read when i do lodge and i love the gardening analogy even i don't garden myself i think it's very timely because weeds come back you know i know enough about gardening so weeds come back you have to be vigilant and racism is a toxic weed it has strangled and got into the soil into the mud into the very water that literally waters the garden from the hose it is in the water supply so you need to be vigilant in your garden and you need to be doing checks just like as women we do our breast cancer checks and as men you do your testicular cancer checks or at least i hope you do um you need to be checking for the weeds you need to be that self-honest and also then form healthy collaborative relationships with people you can be honest to as well I'm like, oh, I noticed that I veered away from someone. So I noticed that this thought came up when I read a name on the C V today and I was I was shortlisting and oof, that hit me in the gut because I thought I was I thought I was beyond that.
0: I like your guiding analogy and the clarity you bring around the trajectory of stereotype misrepresentation, internalization and how that governs our day-to-day interactions, particularly with people who look different to us. In terms of stereotypes, one of my biggest gripes comes from within the development sector. And it's the flippancy with which that sector time and again plasters human suffering. It's the flippancy with which it plasters images of economically disadvantaged black and brown bodies across all forms of media to the point of desensitising the masses. I'm interested in your thoughts around those images.
1: Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate those. Yeah, like the comments, the the observation I noticed, like, for me, language is hugely important in a way that I'm sure many people I'm working with find annoying because I will often stop and say, oh, like, with me saying, oh, which one of diversity? And even, like, the term disadvantage, I'm like, they're not so much... I mean, yes, they're disadvantaged, but they are living through the reality of a legacy of economic extraction and oppression, and that's just factual. And like that's a fact. That's not an opinion. Um, so yes, like I feel like disadvantaged is a much more polite term to use because it implies, it implies that the northern hemisphere of the world was advantaged. If we weren't advantaged, we stole, we raped, we plundered, we exploited, we extracted, and we did it for hundreds of years, and we continue to do it. Still, through foreign policy, through selling of arms, through extracting labour, you know, the, the brain drain of under economically developed, heretofore economically oppressed, I would argue still economically extracted from countries, we continue to do it. So it's not that we've been advantaged, it's not like it's a privilege. No, we weren't privileged in the Northern Hemisphere. We stole. We abused our power. We had power through the fact that we had access to boats and weaponry and language that we then internationalised. You know, through English imperialism, that again enabled us to communicate with vast, you know, on a vast scale across the world through that domination. That's not an advantage. That's that's just an absolute abject abuse of power abuse of the privileges that we did have the privilege to have developed guns and machinery and so on that's just luck of the draw that we developed those tools and you know other countries didn't but then they developed other things you know Arabia was doing mathematics hundreds of years before Britain was China had invented um you know, porcelain and so on, Egypt had built the pyramids, you know, we've all developed in different ways, what we're talking about is economic development, but it wasn't development on neutral terms, it was development built on oppression, extraction, exploitation, and it was maintained for just so many generations, it's it's polluted, it's toxic.
0: I wonder if in your work um, within development, you feel that the sector is questioning itself, if it's pushing the boundaries in its introspection and questioning its own legitimacy.
1: A sector is made up of people and institutions. So of course, there'll be institutions who are questioning themselves, who are doing decolonization work, who are asking probing questions. Even then you're going to say, okay, but Are you asking that question with a capital Q or is it just that you've done a report, but really you're whitewashing it? You know, for all of this, how much are you actually engaging with with these questions? We can all ask questions that are rhetorical or we can ask questions that we're actually going to engage with. Are we who are we appointing to do the review in the first place? Who are we appointing to actually do the questioning? Is it someone who's going to present the question findings to us in a way that we find palatable and comfortable? Or is it someone who's going to challenge us? So I, I don't like talking about sectors um. in the same way that in my work with faith groups, I, you know, I, I work with, with Christian faith groups for the most part, but I'm also a, a former RE teacher. I respect and I work with and understand, have a, a respect and appreciation for all world faiths, like all major world faiths. I would never talk about Muslim people this or Christian people that. I'm like, no, which group within a denomination you're going to have that individual church within that church will have that church's culture and then within that church you'll have the leadership you'll have the congregation and they are individuals you know and individuals are changing and mobile so within any sector yes in the ingo sector of development sector you've got institutions and people who are questioning as a sector no as a sector more broadly by which i mean are enough, are sufficient people, institutions questioning themselves meaningfully, genuinely to elicit change? Nobody wants to actually go back to the root of it. Development, as you said, was built on this binary of we have, we are civilized and we have economic advantage, we will give to the poor. No, that's your constructed premise. The premise is you came to a country that was not your own, you exploited it, you stole their people you stole their identity you stole their culture you stole everything they have that would have actually helped them develop on their own two feet then when they fought for and finally gained emancipation you only gave it to them when it suited you anyway because actually keeping the colonies were too expensive and you actually couldn't maintain it anymore that's why you gave us our freedom you then, through the back door, through in Ghana, through the assassination of President Kwame Nkrumah because of his Marxist beliefs, you actually still managed to chop the legs off of our development, of us standing on our own two feet. So for me, you cannot call the development sector that. You need to call it the... You need to call it the rep- reparation sector. You need to call it the, the amends sector. You need to call it the saying sorry sex i'm trying to think like, what's, a, what's a more hard-hitting word but just like we're doing the right thing we are i, I don't like using the reformations because reparations because it's so loaded and people have their have their connotations and people still think of reparations as some kind of handout I'm like no this is an iou this is just i want to call it the pay your bills sector because that's what it is this is just about getting the northern hemisphere of western countries to come and settle up their bills because you came to Africa. You came to all the southern southern continents. Um, you came to Africa. You came to Asia. You came to Australia. You came to um, southern America. You racked up a huge bill, ran out on it. Then you delivered the bill to us to pay for ourselves through third world debt and you know IMF loans and trade agreements that are really exploitative. And really hindering and actually don't develop our countries, but do yours. I'm like, so wait, wait, so you came to my restaurant, you trashed the place, you stole my stuff, you racked up a huge bill, you stole all the wine, the food, raised it out the kitchen, kept coming back and doing the same. Then you gave me the bill to clean up the mess. And now when you're now coming back generations later, it's like, you know, what? I think maybe, maybe we should clean up that restaurant a bit you're coming in as white saviors like you're doing us the favor and you're calling it development
0: I think we could easily vary into a whole other discussion on the idea of the oppressor giving you your freedom because the oppressor now feels ready and I think of it in terms of the scholarship on decolonial thought I think there's a systematic reviews waiting to be done somewhere to look at who is writing the literature on decolonization. If someone out there fancies it, they should definitely uh, do it and forward it to me. But back to you, I want to focus on your understanding of decolonization, your personal understanding. I've been playing around with the idea of a fluidity that is embedded decoloniality that is dependent on time and space so i'm wondering if that rings true for you i know you spend a lot of time in ghana and of course you live um, here in the uk does decolonization mean different things to you in those two different spaces or is it the same thing
1: onto my favorite topic um yeah to me decoloniality decolonization is something i look at very holistically i look at it through a multifaceted lens of okay what would it be to decolonize I guess like look at decolonizing sexuality or decolonizing gender relationships and for me I cannot I cannot separate I cannot separate gender from ethnicity and and race even though race is a construct I, I mean skin color when I use that as a shorthand and capitalism like to me colonialism is inherently woven in you know it's bedfellows with capitalism you can't they're so enmeshed together it's like trying to unbake a cake you know I can't I can't extract where's the where's the flour in this now you know where's the sugar where's the butter it's all been so meshed in together with our ideologies of gender and sexuality and you know gender roles, that's that's tied into capitalism. You cannot look at (laughs) binary, restrictive Northwestern gender constructs and from that, so then look at sexuality as coming from that because we've got these rigid um masculine and feminine roles which are tied to capitalism. The concept of race is tied into ownership uh, in 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 America, in North America I should say, um, because the South America is a very different place. um, but yeah, in North America, if we're looking at the United States, Like whiteness is a construct being made because of capitalism. Blackness being made as a construct of OAK. If you're black, you, you're owned, you're property. If you're white Irish, you're an indentured labourer. You're an indentured slave, so you won't be whipped, or you'll be whipped fewer times because you're still a human being. But that was tied to property. It was tied to capitalization of the black bodies. So for me looking at decolonization I look at it as okay how how to unpick a tapestry that is all just so interwoven so I always try and sort of have a multiple lens of like okay what does this say about sexuality what does this say about gender what does this say about ownership what does this say about ageism looking through all different characteristics and always having the question of power of where is power in this? And that is the same whether I'm in Ghana or here. So in Ghana, I might instead be considering more um, shadism. I might be considering more the whole annoying notion of Western economic migrants being called expats and how they stay in their expat, i.e. economic lifestyle migrant community. Um, I'll be considering more gender, you know, and, and how colonization has really impacted that in Ghana. Whereas here, I'll be considering different things. So here, I'll be looking more at ethnicity when I'm looking at decolonization and and particularly when I'm looking at, say, faith, um, faith things, I'll be looking at, okay, the whole colonization of the word of God and what truth is and how truth is tied to white patriarchal capitalism and ownership and the whole notion of truth as a capital T, when actually, if I look at first century Palestine and rabbinic culture that Yeshua of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, um, you know, taught and was part of he didn't talk about truth with a capital T and there being a truth it was very much storytelling culture and different people bringing ideas and rabbinic culture at the time being that you could only share your theology your interpretation of a scripture if you'd also suggest that I think it was maybe it was seven or maybe it was at least three other rabbis perspectives you had to have a holistic appreciation and critical engagement so sorry that's a really long narrative storytelling answer in response to your question there. But I think for me, that's what decolonization is. It's always looking at things in their context and seeing what does power bring up for me in this space.
0: I like the idea of I'm baking a cake because even trying to conceptualize my own ideas on decolonization is really, really complicated. I find that it is as hard as trying to unpick a tapestry. But from my readings one of my favorite readings has been Andretti and colleagues whose attempt to unpick the tapestry starts by placing us in different reform spaces based on our beliefs of how we think we ought to reform or rather if we think we ought to reform and i want to take you through those spaces and hopefully kind of try and identify and flesh out where you think you fit in everything is awesome space which is space one and that's very much on par with kind of like Gloria Worker's um, white innocence, which refers to like just the passionate denial of racial discrimination, colonial violence, uh, yeah. and aggressive racism and xenophobia, all of yeah. that in space. And even though it's
1: not denial, it's diminishing a bit. Like most people, for what I was say, don't deny colonialism and slavery and racism, but they diminish them. You know, it will be dismissed as, oh, but that was then, oh, but we're post back now, oh, but, you know, it was so long ago. It's always this, you know, seeking to dismiss it, diminish it because they don't want to sit with the discomfort or because they know that this will lead to a conversation about reparations, about power, about, oh, did you really make it on your own two feet or did you perhaps get an amazing head start? by default of the extraction of your ancestors.
0: Which then takes us on to space two, which is soft reform, which is emphasizes rights and responsibilities, you can make it on your own and how oh. you can determine your own success measured by values of obviously the system as it exists, not challenging the system, but really the having Right. And the structure that sits will still determine, obviously, who speaks, who's intelligible, who's comfortable, who are we comfortable with? That space, which is now radical reform when we're like looking at epistemological dominance. When we're talking about epistemology, we're talking about knowledge. So in this space, we're recognizing the unequal relations of of knowledge production, how that results in like Mm. severely uneven distribution of resources and labor and symbolic value, essentially what you were describing. So you probably said kind of more in in the radical or maybe the throw it away. Um, why
1: is it called radical? You know, I, I, I reject the word radical because people, you know, these terms are created by the hegemony, by the power holders, and they decry, they determine that, oh, that's radical. And when they say radical, what they mean is you're farther from the norm, you're farther from what the hegemonological, um, like, ideas are. And you don't get to tell me if my ideas are radical. What I would say is they're deconstructionist. And for, more importantly, They are justice formed. My ideas are formed from a position of justice and what would it truly look like to deconstruct, to critique, to question. How sad is it that what questioning, critiquing, what's taken for granted makes me
0: radical? radical? I am interested in that questioning of the word radical, but also I think when we're looking at language and the use of the word radical here, I like the fact that it, evokes that reaction from you to question, is this radical? What is so radical about questioning what, you know, the discourse around the moral superiority of whiteness? Yeah, questioning
1: slavery was radical. You know, questioning and fighting to abolish slavery, they were the radicals at the time. So I will always bring that up as a reminder. The suffragettes and the suffragists were radical to propose that women could have equal rights. I mean, only equal in terms of accessing the ballot if you were married and over 30, it wasn't, you know, actual equal. But even to even start the discourse about women, the <coughs> lesser sex being given, <clears throat> being returned, rights that they should always have had which have been stolen from them, being being afforded the same rights as equal human beings with others that was radical at the time so i embrace the term radical because i look at history and the fight for justice and equality and the radical people are the reason that we now have the human rights act the radical people are the reason why we now have the nhs the radical people are the reason why kids as young as eight aren't now up chimneys but are in school. The radical people are why we have safeguarding policies and health and safety.
0: I think I straddled the radical and the fourth space, which is beyond reform, which is throw it all in the bin. I, uh, <laughs>
1: give up on it, turn your back, allow it all, because it just, it just, yeah, you can't reform it because they don't want to take it apart. So there's a sense of actually, if the people who have the power don't want to actually go down to the foundations, it can't be taken apart. So
0: and I think it's white, looking white, white, at the, the nuances within that foundation. Um,
1: but on that, I think for me one of the huge failures of egalitarian like, liberation work is the fact that what we've done is rather than feminism, and by which I mean like white middle class feminism, rather than them destru- <laughs> de- rather than them destroying patriarchy, rather than them deconstructing um, white patriarchy and rebuilding it, they've just absorbed themselves into it. So what we now have is female academics and female business leaders and female INGO leaders still performing white male patriarchy. that's not emancipation. Like that's not that's not freedom. So yeah, I think just I, I say that point just out of oh, it it's sad for me to see, okay, yes, we have more female equality, but what women are doing is still perpetuating the same white supremacist, heteronormative capitalist patriarchy that white men have been doing for millennia. And when you say knowledge, I'm like, yeah, we in the Northern Western Hemisphere, you know, talk about knowledge and we mean literary knowledge and it's got to be written down. It doesn't count. And actually, most of the world has a storytelling form of knowledge. Most of the world has that we learn through visuals. Kids learn through visuals. Most of us would learn through visuals and most of us learn through stories. But we have because those forms, those modalities of learning are more associated with the global majority, brown and black majority countries, and cultures, we have in the Northwestern Hemisphere stamped them out and relegated them to, oh, it's not true knowledge, it's not true. A story, oh, that's childish. When actually, if you tell me a story, I will remember the truth from it, I will take learning from it. If you read a paper at me, I'll maybe have a couple of quotes. So, again, not what you asked for, but yeah. I just pushed that out there of a, uh, you know, we need to question the whole concept of yes, we need to critique who owns knowledge and who the gatekeepers are. And we need to also look at, okay, that's one form of knowledge. How can we, through podcasts, through you know more of a democratizing of, of access to knowledge that the internet is giving us more and more, how can we both open some of those gates because people in southern hemisphere countries don't have access to laptops, the internet, and the same scale that we do to be able to publish in these journals and so on. So you already have the power holders replicating power by being more and more published. But also, as well as storming those gates, which I believe we do need to storm, I also want to be like, okay, and are we are we also making another gate? Are we also making a gate for storytelling, for experience, for the somatic experience to be shared of what's in my body? What truth do I just know within me, within my culture, within my heritage? It doesn't need a footnote, but I can tell you it's truth because I know it to be in my body. And that's ancestral. I get that from my people, from my culture, from myself. And that is a truth that I want to edify and bring forward. And I also want to storm the gates to the printing press and actually throw open the keys and say, yes, black and brown bodies and women of all demographics, rights, prints, get your voice out there. And also don't be so focused on storming those castles that you only associate and align knowledge as being a value if it's printed and published and bound in a book with a white name on the front.
0: Thank you so much. I think that is a beautiful way to end this. It's a good place to, um, to finish our conversation. I'm going to take some of that away and uh, really consider what that might look like. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It's been a genuine joy and an honour to just yeah share some of the talks and the topics that I love so much. Um, And yeah, be challenged in my thinking and stimulated. So thank you, my sister. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining me for another episode. I am grateful to Natalia who made the time to sit and think out loud with me. I invite you to have a look at the reading list if you're interested in decoloniality and reform spaces.